Zamir speaking. Hi, Zamir. It's Denise from The Globe. Hi, Denise. How are you? I'm okay. So what do you want to talk about? Well, I was more interested. I was I was told that you're uh, going to be doing a podcast on, I guess, the fallout of everything that happened last week. Yeah. Now, I, I hope you understand that when I talked to you originally, that that was not my intention, and, and it went really south really fast, and, I was, and that was really unfortunate. That's Zamir Karim. Until very recently, he was a producer at a chorus radio station in Vancouver. Today, we're telling the story of what happened when I said yes to an interview request by CKNW. I'm Denise Balkasoon. And I'm Hannah Sung. Today's episode is called Eggshells. Hello and welcome to Color Code, a podcast about race in Canada by The Globe and Mail. Today's episode is called Eggshells because it's about white fragility. So let's start from the very beginning. A few weeks ago, you did an interview with CKNW. Why don't you tell us what happened? Sure. So a couple of weeks ago, it was a Monday night. I had worked late and I was trying to have dinner with my husband and my son. And I checked my work email, which is always a stupid thing to do. <laughs> always. <laughs> Once you've gotten home. Yeah. And I had a request from a Vancouver station that I had never heard of to come on and talk about a CBC Angus Reid poll that had come out about whether immigrants and minorities should assimilate better into Canadian culture. Yes, this was a poll that sparked a lot of anger online. Right. Mm -hmm. The big number that came out of that CBC Angus Reid poll was that 68% of Canadians think that minorities should do more to fit in with mainstream Canadian society. Quote, unquote, minorities. And mainstream. Yeah. And so at 9.15 Toronto time, I called into a station and I had a really uh, strange and emotional 10 minutes or so on the radio. So we're going to replay that interview in its entirety. Yes, we are. The first thing I heard was the song Black or White by Michael Jackson, and then the host Ian Power started his intro. Joining us on the line is Denise Balkasun, who's the co-host of Color Code, a podcast about race on Globe and Mail. And thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Is, black, is um, Michael Jackson black or white always your theme music, or is that just for today? <laughs> no, I think that's, uh, well, that's a good question. So <laughs> it's just for today. Uh, All right. We just play the right. hits the kids want to dance to. <laughs> that's a good call on your part. So, uh, are, are, so do we get a big fail so far or what? <laughs> I mean, no, 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 no one ever gets a fail for playing Michael Jackson in my book. Fair enough. Fair enough. Hey, um, what's your take on this poll? Did you have a chance to look it over? I did. Yeah. Yeah. And what's Um, your take? I mean, so our episode of Color Code last week was called The Angel Complex, and it was about um, whether Canadians look to the states and look to the drama and the violence of race relations in the states and use it as a way to feel better about ourselves. Um, So it's something that I thought about for a bit, and I think this just proves, I mean, I don't think that means that racism is worse in Canada, but it certainly means that it exists here and that we're in a moment of tension right now. Absolutely. What about this concept? I, I think this brings it to the dinner table. When we talk about 
minorities that tend to stick to themselves, their their customs, uh, their language, their general way of life is very insular and not exposed to the community at large. Uh, would you agree with that? Is, is that a concept that, that you think is a fair comment? Uh, I think most groups of people do that, <laughs> you know, um, including white Canadians. I live in a neighborhood in Toronto that's very multicultural, like on my street, it's very multicultural. Um, but if I go to a restaurant in my neighborhood, it's it's largely white families. Mm-hmm. So I think people often do that. Like, what is it that we want? You know, I would prefer diversity in more places, but I don't think that it's only, you know, immigrants or racialized communities that quote-unquote, stick to themselves. Interesting, because I want to know more about your community, his community, their community, this community, and sometimes I find that I'm not allowed in. I I can't go there because I don't speak the language or I don't partake in the customs, and yet I want to... I'll give you an example. Last year I went to a Buddhist church. I'm not Buddhist, but I went to... Or a temple, rather... I'm not a Buddhist, but I wanted to know more about it, and I went to a Buddhist temple to find out, and I was welcomed with open arms, and I had an opportunity to learn more about it. Uh, I want to be able to go into these cultures, these minorities, and be part of their culture and have them be part of what I would call my culture, the Canadian culture, somebody who was born and raised here. Mm-hmm. Now, is this something that, am I off? Am I expecting too much, or or, or am I asking the wrong question? Uh, well, I mean, you said that the Buddhist welcomed you, so is there a time that you were turned away? No, and I just use that as an example of where where we can, we can turn the tables around. So it's not just a identifiable group coming out, it's us going in as well. Whereas I find there are some communities, minority communities, here in Metro Vancouver that can be somewhat insular and not allow people to be part of their community, nor do they want to be part of the larger community. That's, I mean, that's painting a broad brush. I understand that. And, and I don't want to be too general when I say that, or, but I want to give you the idea that this is, I think, how some people are feeling. Uh, but honestly, if you've never actually been turned away, you know, that might just be your perception. No, I, I think, think, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I actually, in fact, have been turned away. Not not, mm-hmm. not at the door, per se, but when I'm out in the community and there are identifiable groups that are not interested in communicating, for example, or conversing in the lineup at the the grocery store, or don't want anything to do with the larger community. When I go to the community center, as I do each and every day, by the way, and we have people from all parts of the world that come to the community center, and most are pretty good, but there are some that just, they, they don't want anything to do with anybody in the larger community. They stay within their own culture and within their own language. And I think what Canadians want is a little bit more assimilation, a little bit more effort in being involved in the community at large. Um, but you're not really, I mean, first of all, those people are Canadians. <laughs> so if they don't want that as Canadians, then they're also Canadians. 
Um, I also don't really, like if someone, if one person doesn't want to talk to you in the line at the grocery store, you know, maybe they're having a bad day. And I don't think that it's appropriate to say, therefore, all the people of that race, and you're not saying what race they are, um, don't want to interact with you or all of Canada. I mean, maybe they also, you know, maybe they also didn't like the look of you, but that doesn't mean that they don't talk to other white people. Well, no, I think you're. I think you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. Is that I? I am not suggesting that one incident in a line at a grocery store. Maybe I'm not painting a good enough picture for you to to follow what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that uh, I live in a in a community where I am as a Caucasian male, the minority, and sometimes I don't feel that comfortable. But I'm not recognized as a minority. I'm not recognized as somebody who doesn't fit into the community. So there, I mean, I live this every day, so I, I do know how it feels to be on that side of it. And what I come across on almost a daily basis is people that are visible minorities that have moved to this country from elsewhere that don't want anything to do with me. Maybe, yeah, maybe it is me. Maybe, maybe I'm so butt ugly they don't want to talk to me. But for goodness sakes, have you seen how beautiful my children are? They don't want to talk to my kids either. Um, but how do you know that they're immigrants? Well, I know they're immigrants because their language is is uh, very fluent in, in their mother tongue. Well, I have lots of friends who are fluent in non-English languages. Okay. Well, I guess you caught me on that one. I, I, plead, I plead complete guilt here, and, and now I guess, I'm, I guess I'm just a racist now. Is this what oh, you're well, saying? I didn't say that. Well, no, no this is what I... you're inferring. No, that's You're inferring that I have a lack of understanding of what the issues are. Uh, no, I'm saying that um, you're making a lot of, you are making assumptions that those people are born in Canada, that they don't want to interact with you, and that if one person doesn't want to interact with you, they're representative of an No, no, I think you're, you're narrow casting here. I'm sorry. You're, you're making something out of nothing. There's nothing to what you're... something out of nothing. No, there's nothing... People were rude to you, and you don't know how to deal with it, there's... and you're blaming their race. No, I think, uh, no, I, I think you're wrong. I think you're well, really wrong. I can tell that you think I'm wrong, but I think you also, there's a concept called white fragility, which is that, you know, when white people have to deal with How do you know I'm white? They are not the person in power. How do you know I'm they white? uncomfortable. How, what makes you think I'm white? Because I looked you up before I talked to you. Yeah? Yeah. And, and, and so what? What does it mean? So does it mean that because my, the color of my skin uh, doesn't match yours or somebody else's that I'm, maybe I'm from somewhere else? Maybe I'm from uh, far, far away. I could be from any country in the world. I think that if you were from other countries, you would probably be more sympathetic to what it's like to be an immigrant. But you could be. You could. Oh, no, I, you're, you are so wrong. You don't know me. I, I, I'm very you sympathetic. Don't know those people. You don't know those people that you are accusing of not being friendly to you when maybe they're just having, maybe their mom is sick and they don't feel like talking to a stranger at the grocery. They're just people. Wow. You really know how to trivialize things, don't you? Uh, No, I think that you are lumping people together and they're individual. Well, it's true. Everybody is an individual. Uh, So let's agree on that. Mm -hmm. Everybody, every person, every single person is just that, a single individual. I'm talking about groups of people of, uh, who are considered to be minorities 
that well, minority do... is also an interesting word because that's a demographic word, and actually, I hate the word. By the way, I don't like the word at all because, as I said, I'm I'm the minority in my community where I live here in Metro Vancouver, and yet I'm not recognized as that at all. Well, what recognition would you like? I don't want any recognition. I want to fit into the community like everybody else do. I want to participate in the political system like I do. I want them to to participate in the politics of the community. I want them to are. I want them to volunteer at the community center like I do. That's what I want. I'm sure that they volunteer at their own. How churches. can you be sure? Do you go to the same community center? Have you ever been to Metro Vancouver? Okay. See, you're making assumptions. I'm making assumptions. I think we're going to agree to disagree. Thank you very much for your time. It was great talking to you. That was uh, Denise Balkasun, who is the co-host of Color Code, a podcast about race by the Globe and Mail. We welcome your call. (laughs) Should we have had a trigger warning before we played that? Denise, uh, how do you feel right now? Uh... (laughs) How do I feel? I am like visibly cringing. We were um, all in this room having many like cringy faces and 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 laughing quite frankly because it's so uncomfortable. Yeah. I'm not actually getting angry in that conversation till the end. Um at the beginning I was just much more sort of shocked, like just taken aback because I've done a number of radio and sometimes television stints about race and I've never had anything go quite as sideways as that. So what, I mean, can you remember what the moment was when you did start to feel kind of mad? I think I knew that the conversation wasn't, there's no chance of it becoming productive um, when he says, I guess I'm a racist, I plead complete guilt. Mm-hmm. So there's a really amazing YouTube video by um, a New York guy named Jay Smooth, and he says how to tell someone that they sound racist. And he says it's very important to say you did a racist thing, not you are a racist. Mm-hmm. And so when Ian Power was like, oh, I'm a racist, I concede complete guilt, it's like I could just tell that he was no longer able to really even listen to what I was saying. If he was ever able to, it it was definitely not going to happen. Had you listened to it again after doing that interview that day? I did listen to it once because I will also say that when I came upstairs and my husband was like, what is going on? (laughs) I guess he could tell that like I was getting emotional. And, you know, as much as I was stunned, I was also, to be honest, I was quite proud of myself because Mm -hmm. I felt that I had um, not gotten into a fight Mm -hmm. with someone and sort of stuck to what I wanted to say, which is that if we're going to have these conversations, we really need to be specific about what we're talking about. And, you know, I was trying to describe this conversation to somebody who hadn't heard it before. And I said, really, this is the sound of a conversation that all racialized people have nightmares about. Like you kind of it's like your worst dream. Like, you know, that dream you have when you are at school or at work naked. And it's like, (laughs) I guess conceivably that could happen, but it's your worst nightmare, you know. And so any racialized person kind of thinks, oh, yeah, I could have a conversation with someone like this and it would be impossible to be rational with them, except that this actually happened. Mm-hmm. And it actually happened on the radio, which is shocking because you kind of think that somebody who is in a, a broadcaster's position might 
want to follow the usual conventions of an interview and let listen you speak. to the guest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Were you having any explicit thoughts about, okay, how do I deal with this in the moment? Uh, I mean, I don't remember, except that I tried not to interrupt, really. Like, I just didn't see the point of getting into a fight on the radio. But I spoke to Ian on the weekend, and that wasn't his show. He was filling in for someone. His usual show is home decor and real estate. What? Okay, not that real estate doesn't have race issues in right. Vancouver. It does. So it we're does. getting to that in an upcoming episode. Yeah, We are. But, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, so his normal thing is home decor? Yes. Okay. And so he was just kind of stuck in this slot to fill in for someone and given this Angus Reid poll to talk mm-hmm. about minorities. Mm-hmm. About assimilation, yes. Well, maybe because he isn't someone who normally deals with this kind of topic, it's the most honest Ian Power that we got, you know? Yeah. Well, what happened after you and Ian Power hung up the phone? You were kind of emotional, but he went on with his show. Mm-hmm. So what happened there? <laughs> oh, why don't we just listen to it a little okay. bit? Of <laughs> we welcome your call, 604-280-9898 or star 9898. Good evening, Chris. Yeah, how you doing? Excellent. Yourself? Um, I was really disgusted by your uh, last guest. She seemed to be jumping to conclusions and going to this PC nuttiness that the color of your skin determines what whether you say something matters. Kirk in Maple Ridge, what did you want to say? Um, this isn't about race. It's about culture. Exactly. And Thank you. I'll be very frank with you. I don't like multiculturalism. I never have. I like the American ideal of a melting pot. You come to America, you jump in the pot, and you try like hell to be American. Gary on the Sunshine Coast, uh, go right ahead. Yeah, hi, Ian. Um, thanks for taking my call. I've got Iranian friends. I've got uh, Filipino friends. I've got Italian I've mixed with Asians, you name it. And, and Denise, is, I'm sure she's listening. And, and, and kudos to you for being patient enough and, and, and mature enough to be able to listen to the verbal dissertations that were coming out of her mouth. I'm thinking to myself, which planet did she come from, really? <laughs> Let's take a call. Uh, Chindov is on the line. Uh, good evening. Good evening, sir. Can you answer me these questions? In this country called Canada, there were the only Native people. European people merged into the Native culture because the Native were there before I and you or anyone else. Same. You know, no, no, no. I think you're missing the point. Nobody wants anybody to be the same. Yes. They want people to be part of the, the community that will make things better for everybody. They are part of the community. I have three children. My all children have, you know, the friends. We edited those callers for length. We should mention that. That was a cut-down version. Yes. So one of those callers said, I'm sure Denise is listening. I mean, were you? No. I didn't even know how. I mean, I guess I could have had the CKNW site, but no. I didn't know that he was going to have callers after. Well, we said off the top that this is an episode about white fragility, but we haven't yet defined what that means. Right. And so that very day, um, I was preparing to write a column. And I realized that I'd heard the term white fragility, but I had never 
gone to the source. Um, and so I figured out where it came from and I read the original essay, which came out in 2011, and it's by an educator from Seattle called Robin D'Angelo. White fragility is the inability to handle challenges to the white racial position, worldview, or perspective, right? So white people grow up in a very racially insular environment in which we are relentlessly sent messages of our superiority, of our centrality, of ourselves as the norm for humanity. And rarely ever does that get challenged. And when it does get challenged, it throws us off balance, and we don't have the skills or the stamina to withstand the challenge. And we will do whatever it takes to block or stop it. So, I mean, I had that in my head when I was talking to Ian Power on the radio um, and in the longer version of the essay, Robin, who is white, if you didn't catch that, um, you know, she says, fragility doesn't necessarily mean... um, a lower position. So sometimes it means people respond with anger. Other times it does mean people respond emotionally. Um, She gives an example of she was giving a seminar at a workplace and this woman literally thought she was having a heart attack because she was like so (laughs) unable to deal with it that it was like she basically had a panic attack. Oh my gosh. So fragility doesn't necessarily mean it can mean crying, but it can also mean anger, but it basically just means that the sense of self is so fragile that the person shuts down the conversation by any means possible. Mm -hmm. So the next day, I wanted to hear what I had sounded like because I thought that I had done well, but I didn't know for sure. So I wanted to hear. Um, And I listened to it and I was like, okay, number one, yeah, I did a good job. Number two, this is such an interesting little bit of tape. Um, So I put it on my Twitter And then things just started to go really viral. Like Tuesday afternoon, we were in studio for this, and I came back to my desk and I had 500 notifications on Twitter, which is a lot. So then what happened? Oh, and so then the next day, I was also very busy writing the column that I had been reading Robin D'Angelo for. And so I saw my phone was ringing and I didn't answer it. And then at the end of the day, I answered it. And it was the program director from CKNW. Um, So that's the first person that I heard from at the studio. His name is Larry Gifford, and he left me a voice message, and I called him back. Programming, this is Larry. Hi, Larry. This is Denise Balkasun. Hi, Denise. <laughs> How Thank are you? you for calling me back. Oh, you're welcome. I should let you know that I do host a podcast, and we are recording, if that's okay. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so thank you for calling. Well, uh, I just wanted to apologize. I'm, I'm sorry that you were treated the way you were treated and that, uh, you know, you were super composed and really intelligent, and I wanted to hear more of what you had to say, and unfortunately my host got in the way of that. Right. Um, thank you. I appreciate that. Did you talk to him? I've talked to him, um, and uh, he he and I have had a lot of conversations in the last 48 hours. Okay. Um, and, um, he is going to call you as well. Okay. What did you think? Uh, I was really surprised. I was really surprised, you know, um, as you say, these are, these are things that racialized people like experience or dread experiencing all the time. Like as much as I knew that the conversation had gone off the rails, 
it still wasn't shocking to me. Like it wasn't, you know, these sentiments are out there. The whole CBC poll suggests mm-hmm. that these sentiments are out there. So I didn't think that anyone at the station would think that anything wrong had happened necessarily. Was it ever explained to you what the motivation was for this unsolicited apology? Well, I did ask Larry if the radio station got any feedback. Uh, well, I've got more feedback from your followers. <laughs> they actually weren't. I, anyway, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, than than any, I didn't get any phone calls from listeners. Right. It's more of a social mm-hmm. uh, feedback, uh, and deservedly so. I think you've seen the tweets, and mm-hmm. uh, we tweeted out an apology directly to you as well. I just wanted to make sure you knew that we don't find it acceptable. Yeah, I mean, it's very hard to talk about race. That's part of the whole point of our podcast. Um, And so it would be great if Mr. Power would call me and we could sort of talk a little bit more. I think that would be excellent. Yeah. Yeah, so what did you, what were you thinking in the moment as you were talking to Larry? (sighs) I was thinking that even this conversation is awkward, you know. Uh, it's It was really nice to receive an apology. I don't know if I should have been more brusque, you know. I, sat, I was very open to hearing what he had to say. Should I have demanded more from him? I don't know. I think that when somebody's apologizing, it's a gracious thing to do to just accept. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I did ask him later... On We spoke again, and I did ask him if there would be any sort of training for people at CKNW. He did say yes. He didn't want to speak about that on the record. Like, he didn't want to Mm -hmm. talk about that, Um, but he said yes. So, you know, I did demand something. Mm -hmm. So what happened when you finally did get in touch with Ian Power? Well, first we played a lot of phone tag. Press pound for more options. I asked him if he would come on the show, and he said he would like to, but he'd been told that he could not record anything or go on social media because he was suspended from work. What can you tell us about your phone call with him? He apologized a number of times. He um, he said that his whole world is fallen apart, and he now doesn't have a job. He said that he that learning more about diversity in Canada is one of his main priorities right now beyond supporting his family. Um, he said to me that that I sounded very professional, that I sounded like I knew what I was talking about, that he was unprepared. Like, he sounds very sincere, and there's, like, a large part of me that feels very, very badly. And then I listen to this segment, and I'm like, I don't even get it. You know, and he said, like, he was filling in for someone. This was just like a moment in time. And it was a moment in time for me that I almost didn't do. And in the past week, whether or not Ian Power actually, like, feels those things, so many people have been awful to me. So many people have, like, called me various misogynist and racist names. Wait, people have been awful to you in response to Ian Power getting fired? In response to my segment on the show and then to him being like, oh, yes. Uh, There were a lot of people saying really hateful things on Twitter. And then I got a whole bunch of emails. I did get some positive emails. I got some emails from self-identified old white guys saying, you know, great job and talking about when they themselves had realized they were white and why it was important. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. But then I also got, I actually did the math. I got about 60% negative letters. So the majority of the feedback 
was negative Mm -hmm. towards you. And some of it was really, really angry. A lot of people saying, you know, white Canadians welcomed you to this country and all you're doing is spitting in their face, which, hi, I was born here. Oh, my God. (laughs) Table flip. People say that to you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I can read you an email that I got last week. Yeah. This is from October 14th. And he says, I'm 38, grew up not even knowing what racism was. In the last 10 years, racism has exploded because the multicultural lie is broken. With the left's social hierarchy of victimhood, white people are placed at the bottom of that social hierarchy. Truth is, it is the browns, blacks, and Asians that want to move to white countries. That's due to the culture of the West led by white people being the light that leads the world forward. Great job on getting Ian fired, by the way. It only goes to show there is a huge double standard when white people talk about race. As a darkie, you can talk all day without being afraid of your employment and being a woman, you have the double whammy of victimhood. I've been a Canadian for 38 years, but I no longer recognize Canada. Vancouver, my hometown, has pushed out white people to such a degree that the city is completely different from when I grew up. At least there is good butter chicken locally, I guess. Go Canada, go. Wow. Mm -hmm. That is an example of someone who just does not know history, like the facts of history, the racist immigration policies that Canada was founded on. So many racist policies were put in place. So we have like a lot of history there. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you do with an email like that? Usually I would just ignore it. Like what is the point of getting into it with that person. I mean, someone who calls me a racist slur that like I feel was outdated in the 50s, like, but he's 38, like. So what is the point of getting into it with someone like that? What is the point? That is actually a really good question. Mm -hmm. What is the point? Because there was a huge story in the Washington Post recently and you and I both read it. Um, It was big, the most read story on their site, and it was called The White Flight of Derek Black. It's about a young man who was raised to be the heir to the white nationalist movement. His father founded Stormfront, which is an online forum for people, including KKK and neo-Nazis. And then when Derek Black went away to college and all his personal history came out, he was totally exposed and ostracized. uh, But one other student decided to invite him to Shabbat dinner over and over again. And ultimately, the result was that Derek Black denounced white nationalism, white supremacy, and denounced race as a false construct. Like he threw away his whole worldview and started again. It was such an astonishing story. Like his family, his family is white power. Like David Duke is his godfather. Mm -hmm. And so to get back to the question of what is the point of interacting with someone who sends me a racist email, the point is, can they be reeducated? Can they relearn? Can they unlearn what they think they know? And so in the spring, Nano's Research did a poll for the Globe and Mail and Color Code, and we asked respondents across Canada um, if they believed that people could be educated to be less racist. Mm -hmm. And over 80% of respondents said they either agreed or strongly agreed that, yes, people can be educated to be less racist. Which is what was happening at the Shabbat dinners. Exactly. Yeah. And so I guess the point of interacting with him would be um, to make him a better person. Yeah. I mean, what did you think when you read that story? 
Well, it's that question of what is the use of interacting with someone like that? You know, that story was incredibly powerful and I think it's really resonating with people all over right now because that is the big question. What do you do with this? Like Mm -hmm. extremely ugly and vile sentiment that is just out there and it's overt and it's just acceptable in some way. It's in the political realm and the presidential election in the States. I mean, what do you do? I think a lot of us feel helpless because it did remind me of like on a much <laughs> lower level, like the the issue with diversity in workplaces. Mm-hmm. And I read a blog post by a woman named Meredith Clark in the States. And she opened my mind up to understanding that, well, I, now I really believe that social relationships are the key to greater inclusivity in the workplace. So the, the solution isn't even in the office, it's at home. And I believe that, you know, when you have relationships with all different kinds of people, that all of a sudden everybody now has a stake in the idea of inclusivity. It's not just racialized people or marginalized people or, you know, people who are not represented fully enough. It, it should be people in power. It should be white people. I, I strongly believe now in the power of social relationships. Mm-hmm. On one hand, yes, I believe that social relationships help people who have deep-seated prejudices realize that brown people are just people. Um, But on the other hand, like, it just puts so much responsibility on someone who may already be dealing with a lot of crap. Like, I'm an adult, and I could write this guy who sent me a racist email back. But it's just like, it takes such strength of character, because he could write back and be even worse. Like, Mm -hmm. it's like, that would be nice, but I don't think it's my responsibility. I agree that it's not your responsibility just because you came in contact with this guy. But I also can't believe that he could espouse those kinds of ideas in an email to you and not let his views be known to everyone he works with, goes to school with, is in his neighborhood. I mean, we've all heard people say throwaway comments Mm -hmm. that are deeply offensive. And some of us speak up and some of us don't in the moment. Mm-hmm. And I fully understand when somebody has the fear of not wanting to engage with someone who is threatening, like their views are threatening, right? But on the days that we are feeling strong, I think that engaging with people is um, actually a prescriptive method towards healing these larger social ills. I mean, I don't know about this email guy. I did. So I talked to Ian Power again on the weekend. Um, and he sounds he sounds contrite. Um, and so I said to him that he should stay in touch with me. Mm-hmm. And that's that, great. Yeah. And so that's you could be I'm his best teacher. Yeah. Because here's the thing for me as an outsider to the Denise Balkasin Ian Power saga. The story doesn't end here for Ian Power. This mm-hmm. is an entirely new chapter. And it is like up till this point in his life, this is like the climactic moment. This is like the moment where his whole life turns on a dime. Mm -hmm. So this is not the ending. But for the public and for people who are angry on social media, this is the end Mm -hmm. of Ian Power. Mm -hmm. It's like for people who five minutes ago didn't even know who he was, it's like fired the end and the book slammed shut. Right. Whereas I just feel like, nope, he's still walking around out there and he's a person of influence, as we all are, and um, he needs a re-education, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. And I hope that whatever way that he does become educated is in a way that 
deals with his full humanity because social media is not going to do that for him <laughs> or anyone, quite frankly, who's been shamed. Everyone should probably also know that Zamir Karim, the producer that we heard from at the beginning, he was also fired. So he was the person who pulled this whole segment together. Yes. And called you up originally to say, could you be on CKNW? Yes. And he also got fired. He did, yes. And when I spoke to him, you know, he also expressed extreme regret for how things went. Um, And he also mentioned that he's a child of immigrants. His parents are South Asian via Uganda. And what he had hoped would come out in the segment is all of the things he feels that immigrants have done for Canada and have brought to this country. That was not what happened. No, what a totally different reading of the same poll Mm -hmm. and a totally different reality that actually unfolded. Mm -hmm. So what happened at the office after the segment? Uh, The next day after everything went on the internet and it went a little crazy, Mm -hmm. uh, it did not go well. It obviously did not go well for Ian and it did not go well for me. And they were... I, I don't think I would shy away from a subject like that, but I would better prepare the person, mm-hmm. the host that I'm working with in the mm-hmm. future. So what does that mean? Like, how would you better prepare them? I w- would help share my perspective a little bit more. And I don't, or maybe didn't do that enough. Mm-hmm. And so what was the reason for you being let go? Uh, there was, uh, so I don't know if you, you heard, heard, um, Actually, to be honest, I'd rather not get into that. Because um, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, um, you know, if racism or prejudice is really an institutional thing that plays out in individuals, does getting rid of two individuals solve the problem at the radio station? No. No, I think it will... I think the the issue will continue, uh, or not not continue. Um, I think so we, we need to talk about race more and not less. Mm-hmm. So Denise, I want to put that question to you. Uh, Ian Power and Zamir Kareem were fired, but what does that say about CKNW? Do you think that that changes things? So just to be clear, we're not certain that Zamir was fired because of this incident. But I think that it shows an interest to deal with a problem swiftly. I also think that it could be seen as problematic in terms of like, oh, just cutting off the problem, there it goes. Um, Larry Gifford did tell me they would be doing some sort of internal training, diversity training or sensitivity training. Um, And I think that's incredibly important Mm -hmm. because obviously Vancouver's tense about race and the radio station as news media needs to be observing that and commenting on it, but it needs to happen in a way that is smart. So do you have high hopes for that kind of, quote-unquote, diversity training in a workplace? Well, um, I do have high hopes for the existence of that training. I mean, that's what Robin D'Angelo does, and, you know, I'm a huge fan of hers now. Um, But I have no idea who they're getting or who's going to be targeted or anything. Um, So, like, in theory, yes, I believe people can be educated. Um, But practically, uh, I guess I could follow up with the station in a bit to see how it's going. But I, I have no idea what 
specifically is happening. And also speaking of, you know, what is whose job? It's not your job. CKNW should hold themselves accountable and be very public right. about what the follow-up will be. I think every company should be very public about their inclusivity ideals. Mm-hmm. So Robin D'Angelo, our current hero, uh, you say that this is actually what she does. Yes, so she goes into workplaces. Um, I mean, she gives lots of seminars and talks, and part of that includes doing training in workplaces. I am often called into workplaces to address specific incidences. It's unfortunate that that's usually what um, motivates, you know, addressing um, racial equity in the workplace is it's can be incident-driven, where it, I think it should be much more proactive. We're at a social and cultural moment in which if white people cannot grapple with nuance and complexity in arguably the most nuanced and complex social dilemma for the last several hundred years, we are no longer going to be seen as qualified to lead. Right? Our, our millennia is up in which a white person could lead a major institution and still claim, gosh, I don't know anything about race and be seen as qualified. We are being called in and held accountable to be able to grapple with very, very difficult issues. And nothing in our society really prepares us to do that, but it's on us to seek that out and get prepared to grapple. I love that. The qualities of leadership and people being unfit to lead, being called in. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what happened here, mm-hmm. uh, is that someone couldn't cope with a 2016 conversation about race and just isn't good enough anymore. Yeah. So now a couple of weeks out, I mean, what are your thoughts on this whole episode? Um, I mean, as I said, I feel like it's just strange how this happened. Like, just like this moment in time sort of swept me up. Um, It seems to have swept Ian Power up. You know, on one hand, like, there are things that I, I am happy that I had this conversation in a way that was um, easier on myself and like more sophisticated than it would have been for me to have this conversation 10 years ago. Um, I am happy that the institutional response was so swift, but I don't feel like overall happy. I'm not like, yay, what a great, you know, little nugget, right? Like it's, of course still, not. Yeah. it's still yucky. Yeah. Like, yeah. So white fragility is a particularly useful term then. It's one that's still gaining traction. But what were the standout, I guess, takeaway thoughts that Robin left you with? So she said that fragility she finds as a useful term because people don't want to be fragile. And when she makes her point that in the modern world or the modern workplace that issues of identity and race are unavoidable, that people will need to learn to grapple with them in order to work and to lead that everyone sits up and pays attention because we all have to remain relevant in the modern work world. Mm -hmm. Inclusivity as a bottom line. Right. You know, there is this sort of touchy-feely thing that, like, we want racism to end so that we can all, you know, get along better, um, and that is a good reason. But if there is a personal stake in it in terms of one's personal employability, you know, I'll go with that too. 
Thanks for listening. This week's episode was produced by us, Denise Balkasoon and Hannah Sung. Technical producer is Timothy Moore and senior producer is Kevin Sue. I would like to thank Robin D'Angelo. I would also like to thank CKNW for permission to use that segment, as well as Zamir Kareem for speaking with us. And to CKNW and Ian Power, I appreciate the apology and please stay in touch. If you have any thoughts about white fragility, and I know you do, please let us know. Record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us at colorcode at globamail.com. Don't forget to share Color Code with your friends and subscribe on iTunes. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter. I'm at Hannah Sung. And I'm at Balkasoon. So we're going to close with the audio from Jay Smooth's classic, How to Tell Someone They Sound Racist. Thanks to Jay for letting us use it. Race, the final frontier. No matter what channel you watch, no matter what feed you aggregate, it seems like everybody everywhere is talking about race right now. And when everybody everywhere is talking about race, that means sooner or later you're going to have to tell somebody that they said something that sounded racist. So you need to be ready and have a plan in place for how to approach the inevitable that sounded racist conversation. And I'm going to tell you how to do that. The most important thing that you've got to do is remember the difference between the what they did conversation and the what they are conversation. Those are two totally different conversations and you need to make sure that you pick the right one. The what they did conversation focuses strictly on the person's words and actions and explaining why what they did and what they said was unacceptable. This is also known as the that thing you said was racist conversation and that's the conversation that you want to have. The what they are conversation on the other hand takes things one step further and uses what they did and what they said to draw conclusions about what kind of person they are. This is also known as the I think you are a racist conversation. This is the conversation you don't want to have because that conversation takes us away from the facts of what they did and the speculation about their motives and intentions and those are things you can only guess at, you can't ever prove and that makes it way too easy for them to derail your whole argument. And that is the part that's crucial to understand. When you say, I think he's a racist, that's not a bad move because you might be wrong. That's a bad move because you might be right. Because if that dude really is racist, you want to make sure you hold him accountable and don't let him off easy. And even though intuitively it feels like the hardest way to hit him is just run up on him and say I think your ass is racist when you handle it that way you're actually letting him off easy because you're setting up a conversation that's way too simple for him to derail and duck out of just think about how this plays out every time a politician or a celebrity gets caught out there it always starts out as a what they did conversation but as soon as the celebrity and their defenders get on camera they start doing judo flips and switching it into a what they are conversation I have known this person for years and I know for a fact that they are not a racist and how dare you claim to know what's inside their soul just because they made one little joke about watermelon tap dancing and going back to Africa. And then you try and explain that we don't need to see inside their soul to know that they shouldn't have said all that about the watermelon. And you try to focus on the facts of the situation, but by then it's too late because the what they are conversation is a rhetorical Bermuda Triangle where everything drowns in a sea of empty posturing until somebody just blames it all on hip hop and we forget the whole thing ever happens. Don't let this happen to you. When somebody picks my pocket, I'm not going to be chasing them down so I can figure out whether he feels like he's a thief deep down in his heart. I'm going to be chasing him down so I can get my wallet back. I don't care what he is, but I need to hold him accountable for what he did. And that's how we need to approach these conversations about race. Treat them like they took your wallet and focus on the part that matters. Holding each person accountable for the impact of their words and actions. I don't care what you are. I care about what you did.